That's all right. Happy Father's Day, guys. Happy Father's Day. You made it another year. Yes. Uh, In a world that increasingly devalues fatherhood, guys, let me tell you that you are important to God. You're important to this nation and you're important to this church. And may God grant us grace to be even better fathers in the upcoming year. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. Let's start with the question this morning. And here's the question. How many of you have had to do something that you thought was uncomfortable? Yes. (laughs) How about taxes, anyone, right? That's never a good time. Uh, Here's another one. Dentist visits. You know that sound of that drill? You know, the grind, you know, the, the sensation? I hate that. You know, last year, I applied for some life insurance for my family. And and did you know that before a company wants to insure your life, they want to make sure you're not going to die anytime soon? So they send a a nurse to visit you, and she has you step on a scale, you know, face the facts, right? That's uncomfortable. And, And then they give you this little cup, and they point toward the restroom. That's just embarrassing. And then they want to take your blood. Now, you have to understand that I am scared to death of needles, okay? They're like, well, it's just a little tiny thing. Then why does it look like a sonic straw? So they stick me with it, and I yelp. (laughs) Inwardly, I'm going, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Are you okay? No, I'm not okay. Get that thing out. Uh, We have to do things that are uncomfortable at times, and we do them because we think the payoff in the end will be worth it. So God comes to the Old prophet, uh, Old Testament prophet Jonah and gives him an uncomfortable task. And I'm going to be honest, this sermon this morning was rather uncomfortable for me as I prepared it, okay? It's not one of those sermons that I necessarily enjoy preaching. I like how it ends up. I don't really like how it begins, though, okay? So we're going to do some recap. We're in Jonah chapter 3. This is part 3 of a four-part series on the Old Testament prophet. Jonah was a prophet that lived in the 700s BC. He lived in the nation of Israel, and... um, Israel was a prosperous nation. The problem was it was a time of political turmoil. And over to the east, the kingdom of Assyria was growing, gaining power, and they were coming, invading country after country, headed towards Jonah's land, okay? Nineveh, which was the capital city of Assyria, they were a barbaric nation. Their their atrocities were known all throughout history. These were bad dudes, in fact, the best comparison that I can make with them is the modern-day terrorist group known as ISIS. Since I've last preached, we've already had horrific shootings in the city of Orlando connected in at least some way to ISIS. Did you know that even before that, a week before that event occurred, over in the Middle East, they executed 19 women because they refused to give up their purity to their captors. These are wicked people. And exactly the, the, the feeling that you have towards ISIS right now, that's exactly what Jonah would have been feeling when God said, Jonah, I want you to go to them and preach. Oh, no, God, that's not, that's not what I'm about. So Jonah ran. He hopped on a ship and went the other way. And we learned in that first sermon that when we run from God, God runs after us. He doesn't just let us go, he, want, he pursues us in his love. 
So God sent a storm as a wake-up call to Jonah, but Jonah refused to play game, and uh, he went overboard. And that leads us into chapter 2 as Jonah is drowning, staring death in the face. He calls out to God for help. And we talked about, in my distress, what do I do? Well, call out to God because he loves you and he will rescue you. And how did God rescue Jonah? He sent a big fish to swallow him up. That fish was not a punishment. That fish was a rescue. And that's where we pick up our story today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Jonah chapter 3. Now, we're going to get a running start here. Let's start with the last verse of chapter 2. Verse 10, and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. That's a pretty picture. Verse 1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. You see, God hasn't changed his mind. He still expects Jonah to obey. God is a God of second chances. Third chances, fourth chances, fifth chances. The Bible says that God is gracious, compassionate, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So God gives Jonah a second chance and comes to him and says, Jonah, time to go to Nineveh. You see, Jonah has a change of heart towards God, but that change of heart must work its way out in a change of life. So what did Jonah do? Let's look in verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Essentially, he said, Forty days or else. It was not a happy message. It was not a cheerful message. It was gloom. It was doom. It was judgment. And this brings this morning the uncomfortable topic of judgment that we don't like to talk about very much, and I certainly don't like to talk about. I would much rather talk about God's mercy and God's grace. But when we come to these uncomfortable places in the text, we have a choice to make. Are we people of the book? Or are we people of popular opinion? Well, I hope it's the former. So the question we're going to be dealing today is, what can we learn about judgment from this passage in Jonah? Jonah chapter 1, or chapter 3, the first point is this. God is judge, and he calls us into account. That's the first point. God is judge, and he calls us into account. This is not Jonah's message. It belongs to God. If you look back in verse 2, God was very specific. He told Jonah, you are to say the words I give you. You see, Jonah is the mouthpiece here. Only God has the right to evaluate our lives and render the correct verdict. And he has that right because he's God. He created us, he made us, he is king over this world, and we, everything in this world, belongs to him. God is judge and he calls us into account. And we find this theme all throughout the scriptures. In the Old Testament scriptures, hello, (laughs) in the Old Testament scriptures, um, 
We see this at work in Genesis chapter 1. Back in Genesis chapter 1, when uh, Adam and Eve uh, sinned against God, God came to them and he called Adam and Eve into account. We find that in chapter 4, when Cain kills his brother Abel, God calls him into account for that murder. Nowhere is God's accounting seen more vividly than in Noah's flood, Sodom and Gomorrah. Even in the book of Exodus in Egypt, God sends a series of ten plagues as a judgment upon the false gods of Egypt. Very interesting wording there. And when Joshua takes the children of Israel into the promised land, they're coming into the land of Canaan is itself a judgment upon the wickedness of the inhabitants. So this is a theme we see through Old Testament Scripture. The best text I can use to sum this principle up is found in Ecclesiastes, okay? That great book of wisdom literature that deals with life's greatest question, how can I find meaning? And this is what the writer of Ecclesiastes says. He says, God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Now, you might be thinking, hey, well, Brian, that's Old Testament, okay? What, what about the New Testament, okay? Uh, yes, we are under a new covenant, but beyond that, be careful because we also serve the same God as in the Old Testament. We've got to be careful there. When you look at Jesus' teachings, particularly the last week before he died, he inundated his disciples' heads with parable after parable talking about this theme, being called into account at the return of the master, with the implication is that we be faithful. Even the Apostle Paul, that great theologian, the one who championed salvation by grace through faith, did not leave his Jewish roots with the understanding that humanity had a courtroom date with God. In Paul, Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, it says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Notice those words there. All, each. No one is exempt from that day. You know, several weeks ago, my wife told me the story. She was going about her, her day, and she was cleaning the house and doing all those wonderful things that my wife does. Um, and suddenly she had a sensation. It was mama radar. You know what that is? Mama radar. It's that sense that something is wrong, even though you don't know exactly what it is. So she stops and she listens, tries to hear where the kids are. You know, there's, you know we have a small house. If you listen closely, you can usually hear where every kid is. And of course, I have five kids, so that pretty much becomes surround sound, right? <laughs> so she stops and she listens, and she hears some weird noises coming from the kitchen. She investigates. She goes into the kitchen, and there is our youngest son, Thomas, hidden in the corner under the table, and he is enjoying a bottle of honey. Yes. Um, and most of it was not in his mouth. It was artwork, body artwork, and, and it was, you know, strewn everywhere. And uh, he, was, it, he was caught. The judge had showed up, and he was called into account. What does Thomas do? With a big grin on his face, he goes, Honey, numb. 
What do you do with that? You just take a picture and put it on Facebook, right? It's just too cute. But the scriptures tell us that one day all of our secrets will be brought out to the light um, before God, and we'll have to give an account. So this begs the question, by what criteria will God judge us? And that's an excellent question. Um, Pastor Mark said something a couple weeks ago that I thought was really on point. It was this. He said, what is the divine question? God asked us, what did you do with my son, Jesus? And how our lives answer that question becomes the criteria or the measure of judgment. So that's number one. God is judge and he calls us into account. Here's the second thing we can learn from this passage in Jonah, and that is sin ends in destruction. Look at verse 4. Jonah said, yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, some of your versions may say destroyed, overturned, annihilated, demolished. I kept looking for a version that was nicer, and there's just no way to sugarcoat this word. It's bad. Sin ends in destruction. Now, let's define sin for a second, because this room is big, and I'm sure if we took a poll, we would get all kinds of answers. What is sin? Let me give you my definition. Sin is a failure to be all God created you to be. And that's an overarching general definition. The word sin in the Hebrew and in the Greek have a very similar meaning. It's the idea of missing your aim, of falling short of what ought to be. Now, a lot of us think that sin is all the fun things that God says we can't do. Now, I'll grant you, sin can be fun. It can be exhilarating at times. Just like it can be exhilarating to, you know, embezzle, you know, a couple hundred grand from your company or whatever and buy a Ferrari and rip down the road for 120 miles. It's fun for a while till life catches up with you. The rug is pulled out from under you. You think you can control the sin, but it actually controls you. You see, that's, that's part of the nature of sin is that God gives us his rules for our good. They're guides into the best life that he meant for us. When we sin, we don't hurt God. We hurt ourselves. In fact, many times God doesn't even have to bring the hammer down because we bring the own consequences upon ourselves. The Apostle Paul described judgment in Romans chapter 1 as God just letting humanity go their own way, and the result is a mess. Now, that leads us into another question. We struggle with the concept of God being angry at sin, and that confuses us, uh, confuses me at least, because if God is love, how can He be angry? And that's, that's how do we put those two things together? Well, the reality is we see this all the time, we just don't notice it. Did you know that the more you love something, the more anger you're capable of? You see, if you, I'm a pretty nice guy. But if you hurt one of my children, you will see anger like you have never known. Why? Because my love for them is so great. My attachment to my children. And that works out in my interactions with them as well. Um, this scenario happens a lot in my house. I, I feel like sometimes when I'm at home, I am constantly refereeing chaos, okay? I'm sitting there and I hear screaming from the other room. I walk in there and I'm like, and both kids are crying like, what's wrong? Boaz hit me. Well, Boaz, why did you hit your sister? Because, because Shiloh said that she could have candy and I couldn't. 
Well, Shiloh, why did you need to tell Boaz he could not have candy? Why are you, why? And I get frustrated. I see the pettiness. I see the vices growing in their hearts. And I know if they just grow up unchecked, we'll turn them into some very nasty people. And that's not what I want for them. I want something more. And that frustration is actually, I realized that one day I was angry because I loved them so much and I wanted something more for them. And I think that God, he sees the the misery and the pain that our sin causes. He sees how far we've fallen from the glory and the blessing he intends for us. And I think if there's a case for God's anger, it's rooted in that. So there's number two, sin ends in destruction. Here's number three. We can learn from Jonah chapter three, and that is there is a limit to mercy. Nineveh got 40 days. 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. You know, in my first sermon, I talked about that whenever we run from God, God runs after us, but I never brought up the question of, will God pursue us forever? Okay, Nineveh got 40 days. The reality is, for most of us, our expiration date comes at our death. At that point, the cement sets and cannot be altered. The reality is, God can't let us go our own way forever, just doing our own thing. At some point, God has to say, you know, I have tried everything possible, and yet you still won't come back. You still won't return. All right. C.S. Lewis, that great British thinker, put it like this. He said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Even God has limits. But don't let let this lead you into thinking that God doesn't love people. Let me explain why. Why did God give Nineveh 40 days? Was that just so they could think about it before the hammer fell? No. God is giving them a chance to turn around. I mean, for that matter, if God wanted to judge the Ninevites, why send Jonah at all? He could have just smoked them right where they stood, but he didn't. God loves us, and he is always looking for a way out of judgment. He doesn't enjoy judgment. In fact, in 2 Peter, the question is brought up, why doesn't Jesus return right away when we expect him to? In fact, 2,000 years later, we're still asking the same question, but the answer is still the same. God is patient. He is waiting for people to repent. You see, when Jesus returns, he's going to set everything back to righteousness and goodness forever and finally And that's great for those who are Christians. For those who have yet to believe in him, it's condemnation. And God's not willing that any should perish. And so he waits out of love. The Hebrew word here for overthrow can also mean turn. It's a play on Hebrew words here. Okay, It can mean turn around. It can mean do something different. So in other words, Jonah is saying in 40 days, either Nineveh will be turned upside down in judgment or they can have a change of heart. The choice is up to them. 
So what did Nineveh do in response to Jonah's very brief message? Look at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. By the way, anyone's, the first step for anyone's journey to God starts with believing Him, taking Him at His word, that what God says about Himself is true, what He says about me is true, what He says about mercy and judgment. Do we believe what God says? The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth. From the greatest to the least of them, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. They got the message loud and clear. You know, the greatest miracle in the book of Jonah is not that he got swallowed alive and survived to tell about it. The greatest miracle that such a hard-hearted, barbaric people would hear the word of the Lord and let it sink deep into their hearts and create life change within them. Word spread, reached to the king. The king, the pinnacle of Assyrian power, got off his throne, humbled himself, and issued a proclamation. Four things he called the people to do. Number one is the fast. No person, no animal could have a drink of water, could have a bite of food. They literally put their lives on hold to deal with the bankruptcy of their souls. Number two, they called for sackcloth to be worn. What was that? It was this itchy, scratchy burlap bag that you stuck on. It was just uncomfortable. And it was a way of showing God, look, I am really serious about doing business with you. I'm not playing games. Let's stop there for a second for a question. When was the last time that we were willing to get uncomfortable in order to bring our lives under God's will? Through the next several months, our church... um, Pastor Mark's going to be bringing up a series of questions and um, bringing up some changes and thinking about how we do church. We have a building renovation program in front of us, and I'm sure as we process that, we vote about it, and as we pursue it in one way or the other, there's going to be some uncomfortableness about every change is uncomfortable in some ways. But the question is, are we willing to become uncomfortable as a church in order to bring our lives under God's will and to be the church that God has called us to be? Or are we just content with the status quo? Number three, the king called for prayer. He said, call out mightily to God. And the key word is mightily. When was the last time you begged God to work in your life, in your family's life? 
And lastly, and here's the kicker, verse 8, the king called for repentance. He said, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. What is repentance? Repentance is a change of heart that changes your life. When you agree with God about what he says about you, your condition, you turn around and bring your life under his control. We saw this in the life of Jonah. Jonah ran from God, but then he turned to God. He had a change of heart, and that worked its way out in his life as he obeyed God to go to Nineveh. Now it was Nineveh's turn. Imagine with me that day the sound of thousands of voices wailing, calling out to God for mercy. The sound of donkeys, of cattle, calling out for water, the sound of children who were hungry, and that sound rose to heaven. And what does God do? Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Everything we've been talking about this morning builds up to this one central point. When we repent, God relents. When we turn away from sin, God turns away from judgment. God is always looking for a way out of judgment, and Nineveh gave it to him. That's the way repentance works. They turned to God, and God turned away from anger. They repented and God relented of judgment. And what that means for us today, what that means for you and for me, is that our fate is not sealed. Okay, our fate is not sealed. In your hands, you hold the chance for redemption, the chance to be, become something more than what you are. Your past does not determine your future. God has given you a choice. Now, let's pause for a second. Some of you, the wheels are turning. In the back of your head, this question might arise. Well, Brian, wait a minute. We're not saved by anything we do, not by any righteous works that we commit. Aren't you kind of sneaking works righteousness in the back door here? Glad you asked that. Let's talk about that. You're right. We're not saved by anything good that we have done. In fact, if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Christ, let me tell you that everything that you have done, any sin that you have committed, Jesus Christ offers free and absolute forgiveness for you. He will wash you. He will cleanse you. All you need do is ask. And for many of us in this room who have already done that, Jesus is also given the gift of his Holy Spirit who comes and lives inside of us, transforming us from the inside out if we let him. You see, repentance is not just a one-time act way back when. It's a way of living, a way of bringing our lives into the fullness of God's life. It's a lifestyle. And on the day of judgment, the question will be, is there any evidence that the Holy Spirit has done anything in our lives? 
You see, if there's no life change, then that's an indication there has been no heart change. Jesus said several things throughout his ministry to indicate that on Judgment Day, there would be a lot of surprises. A lot of people surprised they made it in, and a lot of people surprised that they didn't make the cuts. And here's one of those passages. Matthew 7, 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You see, there's a difference between calling Jesus Lord and obeying Jesus as Lord. I told you this sermon would get uncomfortable. But let's balance this hard truth with some grace, okay? Is God expecting perfection of us? Absolutely not. Should we be afraid at any failure and every failure? Absolutely not. Jesus understands the difficulty of life. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And that's why we're told in 1 John 1, 9, talking to Christians, talking to believers, it says, when we confess our sin, that means agree with God, He is faithful and He is just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Do you believe that this morning? You see, agreeing with God doesn't just mean agreeing with what God says about judgment. It also means believing what God says about mercy. Musicians, go ahead and come on up. Let's bring this to a close. What this means for us, what this verse means is that our sin does not define us. It's what we do after our sin that defines us. Do we excuse our sin? Do we hide our sin? Do we embrace our sin? Or do we run to our daddy in heaven and say, Daddy, I've sinned. I've messed up. I'm sorry. Daddy, would you fix it? Are we honest with God? If we confess our sin, He is faithful and He is just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, it's not our sin that defines us. It's what we do after our sin. Repentance is a change of heart that changes your life. And when we repent, God relents. Why? Not because we deserve it, but because that's the kind of God He is, a God of love and graciousness and compassion for His children. God takes no pleasure in judgment. He's always looking for a way out. And so He calls out to each one of us today, and He says, turn. Turn to me, come home, and live. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I want you to reflect on two questions as we enter a time of invitation. Questions that you can ask God this morning. First one is this, God, would you give me just a glimpse of the beautiful plans that you have in store for me? Give me a vision of what you intend to do with my life. 
of your goodness and your graciousness. And number two, God, would you show me the things in my life that is holding me back from everything you have in store for me? Any sin, any habits, any attitudes that's keeping me from being what you created me to be. Let's pray together. Father, help us to trust you. Help us to be honest with you. God, our hearts and our hands are open to hear your voice. Holy Spirit, be active, be present. Give us your grace. Help us not to be stubborn. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's celebrate the mercy of God as we sing Mighty to Save. I'll be down at the front if you have any questions or anything to pray for.